0: A few months ago, I had the the privilege of preaching at a church down south in Morgan Hill. And I was asked to speak on the topic of suffering, which is, is never a light topic to preach on. And so uh I'm bringing the same message I did there to here. And so if you have your Bibles with you, uh, I'm going to ask you to turn to one of the, the weightier portions of, of your Bible. And that's Second Corinthians chapter 12. So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll be focusing on verses 7 through 10. For the sake of context, I'm going to start from, from the first verse. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do not wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself... There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Bow your heads to me. We'll pray one more time for the blessing of God to this hour. Father, we thank you for giving us this opportunity to look into your word, to look into this topic of suffering, to respond to it appropriately in a way that brings honor to you, that magnifies Christ and does us good. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who fills us and gives us understanding of your word. And we do pray that you would open up the eyes of our hearts to understand all things that you've called us to. We trust in all that you're doing in our lives, and we pray for this hour that you would bless it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen uh in preparing for this message this week actually for the last 2 weeks i have been so incredibly distracted because of something going on right now um, namely it happens every 4 years and my family life and my ministry life has been on a halt because i've been so distracted and it's this thing going on in rio called the olympics i've been waiting for it to happen uh for the last 4 years it has finally arrived it's been one of the best that i've ever that i have ever watched and i think over 220 million people have been watching it all around the world so it's not just me uh, i love the summer olympics in particular i've been following just about every sport and just about every athlete who's been dominating and i love seeing them dominate i love the the short uh, little pieces that they, uh, that they put together, uh, those mini biographies about these guys from Usain Bolt to Michael Phelps to Simone Biles. who I'd never heard of until this Olympics to the, the swimmer Katie Ledecky who apparently swims faster than men to the South African 400 meter sprinter to everybody. And, you know, I have to admit, obviously I never made it to the Olympics because I'm here. Uh, <laughs> The thought did cross my mind that what if uh, what if Jaden could one day participate? And so I was so inspired by Michael Phelps and Katie Ledecky that this week I taught my son how to swim without his floaties for the first time, and I did start to think. I wonder if he could if he could make it. Um, I think he has the genes for it. Uh, <laughs> He'll have to, and I, I remember coming to two conclusions. Number one, he can. All things are possible um, through the Lord and through cheating. Um, <laughs> but two things are going to have to happen. Uh, number one, I'm going to have to convince him to specialize in a sport where you don't have to be over six feet to win. So, Because uh, we don't have the genes for that. Number two, we're going to have to teach him that pain is good because with the exception of these world-class athletes, to the rest of us, physical pain means you stop any form of exercise that you're doing. I remember talking to uh my dad once or... Uh, my brothers and sisters did because his doctor had prescribed him to exercise more. And so we said, dad, you should start exercising because your doctor said so it will help. It'll help whatever condition you're struggling with. And my dad said, I I would, I would go to the gym, but, but it's hard. And I said, well, what's so hard about it? He said, well, whenever I exercise, I get tired. (laughs) And we said, that's, that's kind of the point, but, that's how the rest of us think. That's why we're here and we're not in Rio. My dad is not in Rio competing, neither are we, because the rest of us, when we experience some kind of physical pain in relation to physical exertion, we take that as we need to we need to stop. These Olympic athletes, if you really do study how they train, what they have to go through, their life is filled with With pain, they're getting injured all the time. They're fatigued to the point where they can't move. They're cramping. They're sore. They want to quit. And something in them tells them or has to tell them that pain is good to an extent. Pain is good. And when you feel pain, just trust that there's a good purpose behind it. Just because you're experiencing pain doesn't mean you have to stop and doesn't mean that you're doing harm to yourself. And it doesn't mean that the coach who prescribed that that workout to you is trying to harm you, even though you think he might. When I used to work as a as a physical trainer, I got expletives thrown at me so many times for making someone do a particular workout that made them hurt, because that's how we respond to pain. Pain means we stopped. Pain doesn't mean we should stop, which is why I realize the Bible makes so many comparisons with athletes to Christians. Because one of the most important facets of Christian living is having a proper perspective and response to the presence of pain in your life. When I was first asked to share my testimony, my salvation testimony, this was 13 years ago at an on-campus fellowship in college that I was a part of. Uh, I thought I said some some decent things in there that were theologically sound. I said that God had, I realized, been patient with me for 19 years. He did not strike me down, even though he could have. If he did, I would have gone straight to hell, but he saved me. And that's true. Yes, Jesus Christ demonstrated in me His perfect patience, and I even said in that testimony, "I realized that now that, I, that I'm in the hand of God, He will never let me go." Even then, I believed in the perseverance of the saints, the security of salvation. So I got two two major doctrines down in my first sharing of my testimony, and then I said this, which I look back now and that just it ruins the whole thing, because I said. This is a small group on a Monday night at Warren College and UCSD. I remember it because of what I said. I said, it's now been a month since I've been saved and I have never had a bad day. And I believe that I never will have a bad day from now on because Christ is with me and the joy of the Lord is my strength. Um, My small group leader, for some reason, didn't say anything. Um, and uh God quickly changed that the more i 've grown as a believer, the more i 've progressed as a minister, uh, actually, the more difficult it 's become to preach on this topic of suffering because you become aware of how much suffering is really going on in the church. And you start to get a glimpse of how people are trying to deal with it. And it's it's not easy. We don't deal with it well, generally speaking, as believers. And we don't deal with other people well who are struggling uh, with immense amount of pain. Now, suffering and trials can come in a variety of forms. I've realized, though, I mean, living in San Jose in and of itself is a trial. It's expensive. People are not the nicest, we found out. Um, not saying anything about you, just... And again, life has a variety of trials. You fail tests, you lose jobs, you get into squabbles with your siblings. Uh, there's San Jose traffic, there's LA traffic, there's the heat, there's the flu. And all these trials are frustrating and life is filled with them. I have realized that there is a particular breed of trials that's particularly agonizing, that are particularly painful, that, for no better way of saying it, cause an unusual kind of shock to a person when he's experiencing it, and it causes a reverberation of pain that never seems to leave. These are the trials that When you're going through them, you feel like they're just haunting you all the time. They're tormenting you. You're always distracted and you're somewhat confused because you never seem to be dealing with it correctly. And these are the ones that truly drain the life out of you. And I've realized that not all trials are created equal. Everyone is going through a hard time. But I do recognize and affirm that there are certain portions of our church that are struggling more than others. These are the trials that when you're going through them, the Bible doesn't seem to be enough. You have to find 50 million blogs to read as to how to get through them. And no book ever seems to address the problem. These are the trials that I put this sermon together for because they're the ones that we commonly term as the thorn in the flesh. How do you know that you have a thorn in the flesh? Well, for one thing, you can look, um, but the Bible's not talking about a physical thorn in your flesh. It's metaphorical. And before we get into the passage and what it says, I do want to uh, lay out a description. How do you know that as a believer, and I'll prove this later on, that you have one of these? Number one, they're out of the ordinary. They're not something that many of you experience, at least not on a regular basis, they're out of the ordinary. Hot weather is not a thorn in the flesh, nor is the winter, um, nor are flat tires, even though they feel like it. They're out of the ordinary. Number two, they are excruciatingly painful. You know when something really hurts. You know when things are annoying, when they're frustrating, when they're inconvenient, but there are certain ones that particularly hurt. Number three, they are persistently painful. The pain doesn't go away. It's not physical. It's internal. It's emotional. Number four. They feel almost impossible to handle well. You're almost embarrassed about the way you've been conducting yourself trying to make it through and you feel like you're just a cosmic mess because you're not handling the trial. Well, number five, God doesn't seem to take it away. When you ask him to take it away, you've been in those situations where you have begged God to take something away because you can't handle it. And he keeps saying no. Number six, they're very, very difficult to talk about with people. Again, hot weather doesn't count. When the weather's hot, I'm complaining to everybody. But there are certain trials that you go through that, you for some reason only feel comfortable talking about it with a pastor, with a counselor, because you're afraid of how people are going to view you if you fully reveal where you're at and how you're struggling. And everyone else in the world just can't seem to say the right thing when you tell them what you're struggling with. You've been there. You've shared a struggle. Someone says something while meeting, and you go home even more frustrated than you did when you got there because they said it the wrong way. That's number six. Number seven. They bring you to a point of almost complete weakness and helplessness. You feel like you can't move any further in your spiritual walk because things are just difficult. Number eight. They make focusing on the good things in life Extremely difficult. You know how blessed you are in all that you have. You know that it's a blessing to be alive. You know that it's a blessing to be healthy, to be a part of a church, to have food, to have resources. But there's a certain trial in your life that is making it extremely hard for you to concentrate and give thanks to God for the good things that are happening. So they're out of the ordinary. They're excruciatingly painful. They don't leave. They feel impossible to handle well. God doesn't take them away. They're difficult to talk about. You feel absolutely helpless. And you cannot seem to give thanks. For the good things that are happening in your life. And when you're going through something like this. People naively. Try to counsel you in the way that Job's friends did to him. And it makes it all the more worse. If you're a believer today, you're in one of three places. You're either currently experiencing one. And you're confused and you're in pain. And you want me to get to the message sooner (laughs) and get out of this introduction. Number two. You have just experienced one and need a breather and hope that Christ comes before the next one happens. Number three, you are about to experience one and you don't know when it's coming. Why do these things happen? How do you respond to them? I have asked this question many, many times. I know the answer objectively. It has become even more difficult to answer it subjectively when you experience it and when you watch others experience it. Is Why does God allow for things to happen such that the hearts of his very own children are in a state of incredible agony and even torment. God knows how much pain you feel. Why does he let you go through it? And if you want to know what book in the Bible addresses this kind of a pain, it's this book. Second Corinthians is one of the most emotionally charged book in the Bible. It's where Paul comprehensively reveals his heart to people in an effort to write a defense of the integrity of his ministry and his character in light of the false accusations that were being made against him. There is a lot of heart in this book and there is a lot of pain in this book and anyone who has ever needed to defend the integrity of his personhood, his ministry, his character against false accusers and defamators of his own character, understands how real the emotions in this book is. You feel the pain, you feel the plea. Paul writes in a way here that he just doesn't write anywhere else. This is the book where the Bible reveals the heart of a leader, where Paul says, if you want to know how true ministers of the gospel are supposed to think as opposed to the false ones, read this letter. So what happened? Why did he write it? It Wasn't first Corinthians enough, right? Why do you have to add another 12 chapter or another 13 chapters to your Bible reading program? For one, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, after he wrote it, you had false teachers who came up in the Corinthian church. They lured people away from the truth and from Paul. Paul had pastored that church. When Paul heard about this, he was in Ephesus. He left Ephesus, went back to Corinth to try to address the problem with the false teachers, and guess what happened? The visit did not go well. He was insulted. He was betrayed. He was corporately rejected by the church that he loved and pastored, and you know how painful that is. If you love someone and have raised someone in the truth and they outright reject you and accuse you of things that you're not guilty of. And so Paul went back to Ephesus. He wrote another letter to them. And this one was a severe letter. It's the letter of the severe nature, which he mentions in second Corinthians. And we don't have the content of that letter. So technically it was second Corinthians, third Corinthians. Maybe, but we don't have that second letter. So Paul then found out after he wrote that letter from Titus while he's still in Ephesus that the Corinthian church, that the people had repented. They were filled with a godly sorrow. They realized they were wrong. They realized the truth about Paul, but there was the reality of the continued presence of false teachers, slandering the false accusations, the continued defamation of Paul's character. Because of this, Paul put this letter together where he's defending his ministry, he's defending his credentials, he's defending his apostleship, he's defending his character. And part of the defense of his character as a minister of the gospel is how he boasts. And in chapter 11, Paul says, what makes me different, what makes me real is with sincerity, God knows this. I will only boast about what I could not do. I will boast in my weaknesses, not in my strengths. that That's not the American MO, right? We boast about the things that we're good at, the things that we can do. And Paul says, no, I'm different. I boast about the things that I can't do. I'll talk more about the things I wasn't able to accomplish. And so look at uh, chapter 11. Go back a couple of verses. Look at verse 30. Where Paul says, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. Paul did a lot of things in his ministry that we, you and I, will never be able to do. And then he says, the God and father of the Lord Jesus, he who was blessed forever knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aratus, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascus in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. In other words... The reason why I'm here, I would like to say, this is Paul speaking, I would like to say that I am alive because I pressed through life like no other. I was a warrior. I was a lion. I was an Olympian. Paul said, no, that wasn't the truth. Here was the truth. They were trying to kill me. They had cornered me. And the only reason I'm alive was because by the grace of God, people helped me through a window. In the same way that Moses would only be able to say the reason why I was alive was because my mother put me in a basket. Chapter twelve, he says that he he was privy to this great revelation that God gave him, and yet doesn't boast about it. He still didn't till the end of his ministry. If you look at the rest of the Bible, we never really we never find out what it is that Paul saw in that vision when he was caught up in the third heaven. We just know that he was in paradise, that he heard things that were inexpressible, incommunicable. But he says, I will rather boast about what I couldn't do. I would rather boast about the extreme pains that I went through. So the whole point of this message, the whole point of this verse is to have a Christ-centered, Christ-exalting approach to these thorns in the flesh, these really extremely painful trials because of the reality that God intends them for his glory and your good. And so if you're going through it right now, hold on to this. If you're not and you're about to, don't forget this. Keep it in your heart. The first point, here's your outline. They all start with an R, I'll tell you right now. Because I'm from the Master Seminary, and we do that there. And if you've listened to enough sermons, you can probably even guess the outline. The reality, the reason, and the response to these extremely painful trials. Number one, so these are three keys to a Christ-centered approach to these extremely painful trials. Number one, know the reality behind painful trials. What's really going on? when you go through these things, two things are going on. There are two realities. Number one, God is sovereign over their presence. And number two, God is sovereign over their persistence. God allowed it to be there and God allowed it to stay there. Paul says, and because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. The surpassing greatness. What is he talking about? The revelation that Paul received when he was caught up in the third heaven was a revelation that no one else had ever received up to that point. He was given a spiritual privilege relating to the knowledge of God that no other person was able to claim. It was so unique that he couldn't express it. He couldn't communicate it. He got a glimpse of heaven. I really would like to know what Paul heard and saw there. But it's not written down. Paul knew something that we don't. And that could have made him boastful. There are a lot of, I realize this, a lot of seminary graduates, pastors, students of theology who become so arrogant when they get their degree or two or three or eight. And they want to make a point of letting people know how much they know. They want people to know how much they know and how much the people don't know. Paul saw something that no amount of studying or Christian education can ever attain. Study your Bible, one cover to another, exegete it, read read the original languages, listen to every sermon. You will never find out what Paul saw, what Paul heard. It happens all the time. People get some kind of a theological degree, a license, a certification, uh, an affirmation, and their head blows up. There's this cranial swollenness, expansion. They're about to explode. And they walk around feeling like they're entitled. They demand respect. They demand honor. They want to sit in the seat of honor all the time. And they want to make sure everyone knows what they've accomplished. They want to make sure everyone knows what they that they've learned something. Paul said to keep me from exalting myself. Even an apostle transformed from the inside out set apart by God to be the minister to the Gentiles knew that there would have been a tendency to boast literally keeping to keep me from raising myself above others. That is the literal Greek definition of that word. What God was about to do was this. He was about to ensure that his apostle, after receiving something that was greater than what anyone else had ever received regarding spiritual revelation, would not dare to boast himself as greater than anyone else because of it. It was to make sure that Paul did not confuse the greatness of the revelation with the greatness of the recipient of that revelation. If you remember in, in Second Chronicles 26 with King Uzziah, after God gave him success, he became prideful at heart. And that caused the downfall. And so what did God do to prevent Paul from, from getting there? There was given to me... Passive. It was given to me. Paul didn't find it himself. He didn't search for it. He didn't go on a treasure hunt for thorns. It was given to him. The the question is, who gave it to him? Ultimately, who gives blessings and permits calamities in people's lives? Who gave it to him? It was God. God was sovereign over Paul's being struck by the thorn in the flesh. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, literally a stake in the flesh. And I remember a few years ago where uh, Kathy and I were heading upstairs uh, to get ready to go to bed. Uh, we had turned off the lights. I was sitting on a couch finishing something I was preparing for church or for school or whatever. And I got up and I accidentally jammed my toe against the side of the couch. And, and you know how that feels when you jam. Your big toe on the side of anything. And all you can do is cringe and, and time is supposed to let the pain, um, fly away. And, and I remember when we got up to the master bedroom, I remember thinking the pain hasn't gone away, but I'm afraid to look down lest I see something. Cause you know how delicate those toes can be. And, uh, I looked down anyway. And there was a nail that had inserted itself between my toe and my toenail. So it was one of those that was on the side of the couch. It was uh, about as thin as a needle. And when I had jammed my foot by accident against the couch, that nail had inserted itself. And I remember thinking, this is, I think, the end of me. And I remember thinking, I love my wife, I love my kids, I love my school, but I don't care about anything I've achieved. I just need to get it out. And so I, I I, I said, Kathy, there's a nail in my toe. And I said, can you get it out? And she goes, well, what do I do? I said, get some tweezers and get it out. So she comes over, and as soon as she even touches my toenail with the tweezers, I screamed. And so she ran to the corner of the room, and I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. And I remember thinking, "What am I going to do?" So I, I prayed and prayed and prayed, and then got the tweezers and managed to pull it out, and it was about that long. And I remember thinking, "The day is going to come when I preach on 2 Corinthians 12, and I will get <laughs> to share the story. because I remember thinking at that moment, it doesn't matter what I've achieved. When you have a thorn in your flesh, all you can think about is, I need to get it out. A thorn in the flesh is something that wouldn't be there. If you've taken human anatomy, you won't find a section called the thorn in the flesh. Because they're foreign objects. They create a lot of pain. When you get them, your nervous system starts firing. Get it out. And the whole world has to stop until you get it out. People don't get used to them. You don't get acclimated to them like you do to the lack of, uh, to high altitudes and lack of oxygen and even heat. You're constantly distracted. You can't concentrate. And it's different from a slap in the face, which happens once and you feel the pain and then it goes away. In Numbers thirty-three fifty-five, God tells the Israelites that if you do not get rid of the pagan influences in this land, if you don't drive them out to completion. They will be to you as thorns on your sides because they will continually seek to overthrow you and oppress you. The thorn in the flesh, Paul describes it further, a messenger of Satan. So here's the debate. What was the thorn in the flesh? Some say there was an actual demonic spirit tormenting Paul. Other commentaries say that it was an actual person persecuting Paul. Some say it was a demonic spirit who had filled a person who was then persecuting Paul. And then some say it was a physical ailment. Messenger of Satan, literally an angel of Satan. After a lot of studying. And a lot of discussion with the rest of the staff I have come up with, I believe, is the most accurate answer to this. Affirmed? The answer is, I have no clue. Why? Because the Bible doesn't specify. The point of this passage is not to try to figure out what that thorn in the flesh is. The point of the passage is to make sure that you're responding to your thorns in the flesh the way Paul did. It's metaphorical for an agonizing, persistent, and distracting trial. All we know was that God permitted Satan to send something or someone to Paul that inflicted a stake in his heart and it was tormenting him. It says a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, literally buffeting me, beating me, striking me, pummeling me. Hey, concentrate. This, This isn't Paul having a bad hair day. This is him being pummeled. It's in the present tense. It's ongoing. It's happening over and over again and it's not leaving. And God put that there to humble Paul, to keep him humble, to keep him from boasting. Man has a natural tendency to think more highly of himself than he ought to when God has given him something good. It's always in God's plan to, in some way, if you're a believer, if you're his child, it is always in his plan to bless you, right? Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. You have every spiritual blessing. It's, it is in God's plan to bless you. But it is never in God's plan for you to be self-exalting or self-promoting. Self-promotion is from the devil himself. What did he tell Eve in the garden? If you eat that fruit, you will be like God. If you have a thorn in the flesh, it doesn't mean that you've promoted yourself, but it could mean that God just wants to ensure that you won't ever get there. And God will use whatever circumstances that he needs, that he desires to make sure you don't get there. Because people are much less apt to boast when they're stressed and they're tormented and they're agonizing. You think about this. It's very, very difficult to talk about your resume when you have just lost your child.
1: It's very, very
0: difficult to talk about your accomplishments when you're being harassed by somebody. Your comfort is in the fact that God's not in this cosmic battle with Satan playing tug-of-war with you. When things happen, when these thorns come, God let it happen. He knows how much you can handle. And he allowed it to happen. Because painful trials like these are one of God's means to keep a person subjectively thinking the way that he should be thinking, speaking the way that he should be speaking, and boasting the way he should be boasting. It's to ensure that you don't walk around strutting, that you don't walk around like you're some kind of an angel with a halo over your head, that you don't have this false sense of importance, that you as a believer stay grounded and down to earth. And God in his mercy and grace allows these things to happen to keep you where you need to be as a humble man before an almighty God. And he is sovereign over their persistence. This is what was so difficult. When Paul says three times. Where do you remember that from the garden, right? Three times. I asked him to remove it. Three times. Just like Jesus did. In Gethsemane. Three times to pray for the cup to be removed. Whether it was three successive times in a night that Paul prayed. Or three times over a longer period of time. I don't know. All we know is that it was a persistent prayer. So the idea is that the trial was so painful that the same man who wrote that no temptation, right? You will encounter that God knows you can't bear. And yet this is the same man who experienced this to the point where three times he asked God to take it away. In other words, the first time God said no, and Paul didn't like that answer. So he asked it again. He prayed for reprieve rather than for strength, which is understandable if you've been in a trial like that. And God let it stay. One of the, I think, most difficult things to witness uh, as a minister is when you watch a particularly upstanding individual go through a trial like this, where you watch the confidence just slip away day after day after day. And the tears don't stop coming. And they've prayed more than three times. They've prayed 300 times and they've asked you to pray 600 times for them. And things don't change. and you look at those people, you look at that family, and you know that you can't really help them. And (laughs) I remember thinking, they didn't tell me about this in seminary. They taught me how to outline a passage. They didn't tell me how to keep a person above the water when they are just tired and they can't deal with life. And it's, it's difficult because those people are brought to a place just like Job was where the only person who can help them is God himself. And they enter into this relationship with God that is deeper than it's ever been. And you as their friend, as their minister, as their leader, as their brother, can only watch and pray. I remember Elizabeth Elliot saying that about her husband, Jim Elliott, a few weeks before he died that Jim went through struggles and discouragements that I knew I could not go there with him. There are a lot of times where when God delivers us, we say, praise the Lord. He was really at work. How often do we say that when there is no deliverance? How often do we look at God and say, God, you are absolutely at work when that thorn in the flesh just doesn't get taken out? Sometimes God delivers. Other times, he doesn't. Sometimes he says yes. Other times he says no. Because in those instances where he said no, deliverance is not the best option. Why? Paul probably asked why And so Christ spoke to him directly. Look at verse 9 now. Now we're in the reason. So now we know the reality. God is sovereign over their presence. He's sovereign over their persistence. But why? Why don't they go away? The reason behind it. And here is a huge statement. You highlight this one in gold in your Bible. He has said to me, Christ speaks. This is not Paul now pulling out something from the Old Testament. This is Christ speaking. He says, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So in other words, what's the reason? There are two. Because God's grace is sufficient and God's power is perfected when these things take place in your life. Similar to. When God spoke to Job after 30-something chapters. Except in this one, we just have a verse. My grace is sufficient for you. This is what Christ says. In other words, what grace is he talking It's not talking about saving grace. Paul is saved at this point. He's a believer. He's been justified. What he's talking about here is the empowering and strengthening grace of God. And when in Second Timothy, he says, be strong in the grace of God. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, And his grace did not prove vain, but I labored more than any of them. Not I, but the grace of God with me. In Philippians, when it says, You can be content in any circumstance because it's Christ who strengthens you. And in Ephesians, he says, Be strong in the Lord. Ephesians 6.10, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. So what is this grace of God he's talking about? It is the grace that the scriptures describe as what enables a man or a woman to endure the trials to fight against the opposition in doing the work of the Lord. It is the grace that operates itself in the perseverance and dynamic working in the midst of the resistance and opposition that places itself against the minister and his prize. It's the grace that enables you to live the way you're supposed to live, be who you're supposed to be, and do what you're supposed to do even when Satan is trying to take you out. My grace, Jesus says, not yours. Nothing you can find in and of yourself. Why are you empty? Because there isn't anything in you that you can use to fight it. But he says, my grace is sufficient. Sufficient. It's all that you need, not my grace plus reprieve. It's my grace alone. So what Jesus is saying here is, and this is sobering. Don't forget this. Paul, you do not need for that trial to be removed in order for you to make it through. Christ would not remove the thorn, at least not then and there, but would continually supply Paul with the grace that he needed to endure it, to fight it. Though it tormented him, God would not allow Paul to be defeated because the power of the resurrected Christ is in him he wanted paul to understand that what you need to get through life is grace one of the biggest mistakes and decisions that i made as a high school student was taking french <laughs> till this all i remember is Creme brulee. <laughs> For no better terminology, I stunk at it. That was my thorn in the flesh in high school. Because I prided myself in actually getting decent grades, taking AP classes. But in my sophomore year of high school, uh, I had moved to a new school which was a private prep school and French was really hard. And I took my first exam and I got a 41%. And I'm like, mm, this is not looking good. Um, and I studied hard and I took the second one and there were only three for that quarter at least. And I got a D. It was like a 67 or 69. And I remember thinking, I've, I'm at the end. I have not passed this class. My first quarter report card will come in with a no pass. Because I don't know my French. I just don't with full integrity. I have no idea what's going on in this class. I never sought out my teacher, but she sought me out. And she said, I will make you a deal. I will help you every day after school, every day you can come, and I will cancel your first two exam scores, and I will not count them as a part of your final grade so on my uh transcript under French two, it says that I got a b plus it was a fair score because I never cheated. And it came because of the grace of the teacher. I didn't work for it. I didn't earn it. I passed because someone showed me grace. And the exact same thing happened at the Master seminary for my very first hermeneutics class. I'm like, what is God trying to tell me? Because I get a B on my first paper, a B on my second paper, I missed some homework assignments, and then my grade said A minus. And so I went to the professor and said, "Sir, I think you made a mistake." And he said, "Oh, what what mistake did I make?" I said, "Well, I got a B on my first paper, I got a B on my second paper, and I got a B on the whatever other major homework assignment." was that you gave us, but my grades as a minus. And he says, well, you worked hard. And I said, okay. And he said, well, and, and, and and you really did do your best and you were a good student. And I said, I know. And he said, and there was a little bit of grace on my part. I don't know if that was God just trying to tell me that I can't make it through school without the grace of teachers or If it was just to learn this basic principle that the grace of God is all you need in this life. It doesn't mean that you don't have a responsibility to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. God desires that all of his children remain humble and know that the grace of God is sufficient in all of life and ministry because it is through that humility that the message of the cross of Jesus Christ crucified is most clearly conveyed. You as a Christian walk around as a testimony that you were not good enough to save yourself and that someone by his grace paid his life on the cross so you could go to heaven and be with God forever. And that is the message that you carry around. And it's tainted when you be boastful about the things that you've accomplished or what God's given to you. And so to keep you as the person who God intended you to be thinking the way you ought to proclaiming the gospel in the way it ought to be proclaimed, he will let thorns in the flesh stay there to keep you humble. So you can fully say with integrity of your heart that the grace of God is enough. And also say this next thing, which is a huge paradox for power is perfected in weakness. What does that mean? Power, referring to the power of Christ, the power of his resurrection, is perfected. Greek word there, to make complete, to reach full form, to reach a mature state. Power is perfected in weakness. An animal will exhibit its most glorious form in its mature state. There's a difference between an eaglet and an eagle, right? A baby calf and a full-grown killer whale, a puppy and a dog. One's immature, one is fully mature, doing what it ought to be doing in the form that it's supposed to take. And there is a difference between a believer who has never struggled in his life And a believer who with thorns in the flesh has had the power of God fully formed in him. In the life of a believer, there is there is a fullness, a maturity of form of Christ's power that was designed to be reached in its full spectrum of light and color when you are stripped of all the pride that you have through the trials and hardships and persecution that will hurt. there are two things that are more important than deliverance. One, the cultivation of genuine humility in your character. And number two, the demonstration of God's power in your life. For your own confidence and as a testimony to the watching world, when you are going through these trials, the more difficult it is, the fuller the formation of Christ's power in you. It shines most vividly and reaches its most complete form and manifests itself in its full design when you're being persecuted, when you're being tried, when you're being tormented, And when you are agonizing in a way that is persistent. That's the reason. The reason why these trials exist is so that you would understand the sufficiency of God's grace and that you would experience the fullness of Christ's power. So how do you respond? Look at verse 9, second half, through verse 10. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The health, wealth, prosperity gospel is a flat out lie. The response is this. You boast in your weaknesses. And you be content in them. Most gladly, therefore, in other words, what Paul is saying is I am not embarrassed. I'm not ashamed. I'm not in a state of bitter resignation. I will rather boast in my weaknesses. Not in the greatness of that revelation that I experienced. But in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ The power of the resurrected Christ that mightily works in him would dwell literally to take residence. It's the picture of someone going into a house and making that place your home, not just as a visitor, not just as a guest, but as a resident. In whom does the power of Christ take up its permanent residence? The power of Christ will dwell in the heart that has reached the end of itself. There are a lot of people who will say, I want to experience God. I want to know God's power. I want to know him more fully. And so God sends a trial and all of a sudden those same people look at him and say, how could you do that? Those who want to really experience God's fullness have to be willing to be put through the furnace. A man who loves to talk about the things he accomplished cannot be doing spiritually well power of Christ is not in him. Arrogant people are weak people. But when someone has reached the end of himself because of some persistent agony in his life, when they say, I feel like I can no longer handle it, I feel like life is unbearable right now, I don't know what to do. And by the way, this doesn't imply that you have sinned. There are some that teach that if you're experiencing this kind of a trial, it is God's way of disciplining you for your sin, and that is not true. But for those people who are experiencing things like that, you want to keep an eye on them. Because those are the people who God will end up using greatly. E.W. Tozer, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until He has hurt him deeply. And so, not only boast in your weaknesses, but be well content. Don't, don't feel sorry for yourself. Bible says that. I am well content with weaknesses. He finds contentment in the fact that he can't do everything. Yet he was powerless with weaknesses, with insults, Oh, I would love to live in an insult-free world. But we don't. With distresses, with persecutions, when people keep hounding you, with difficulties, for whose sake? For Christ's sake, for the sake of experiencing the power of this resurrected Christ, I will be well content. I will not force God or compel him to try to take it away at this point in life. Because here's another paradox. For when I am weak. I am strong. He doesn't know it. But the believer who is flailing. Is a lot of times the believer who is flourishing. And what you feel to be torment in your soul. Is being displayed as triumph. When Job did not curse God and all the agony he experienced. That was a slap right in the face of Satan because he said, afflict him and he will curse you. Job never did that. Joy over trials doesn't mean you pretend like you like what's happening. Otherwise they wouldn't be trials. Trials. But God will send both the blessings and the afflictions in your life. He will give you people who love you. And he will give you people who hate you. And you have to learn to value both. Because there is a place for people who encourage you. And there is a place in your life for people who defame you. God uses both. The, most pain, the more painful life gets, the more powerful the man of God becomes. God will inflict pain on you, but not harm. He makes you weak to make you strong. That is the, the paradox. I don't know how that works, but it does work. So maybe instead of saying, God take it away, maybe then there's a, there's a room there for you to be able to say, God, keep it there for as long as it needs to be there to change me. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, There's a promise that seasons of torment and trauma will be followed by seasons of triumph. The power of Christ will dwell in you and will be perfected in you. The one who saved you from your sins is the one who will strengthen you in this sinful world who persevere. Your savior is your helper. The one who absorbed, think about this, the one who absorbed the father's wrath towards your sins is the one who will supply you the strength to fight through a world of sin. The resurrected Christ is in you. And when those thorns are there, they serve this purpose for that power to be completed. We're all in different places when it comes to the spectrum of trials. But what doesn't change amongst every believer here is that nothing will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus because for you all things work together for the good because he who was called you has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son so wherever you are let that happen let's pray father we thank you for the the truth of Christ in us as our hope. We thank you for the love that you have for us, uh, the promise that you'll never forsake us, the promise of your power, uh, of your resurrected power uh, reaching its form in us. And we thank you that through the most difficult times that you don't abandon us and that you continue to conform us to the image of your son. And we do pray for strength for everybody here who struggles, who is struggling, who will struggle with these things. We pray for perspective. We pray for just a holy response to these things happening for your glory and for our good. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ who strengthens us, we pray. Amen.